0: From the Carnegie Chinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast hosted by Paul Hanley.
1: U.S. President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping concluded last week their first summit on the grounds of Mar a Lago in Florida. This was basically a get to know you meeting for both leaders. One of the most significant outcomes was the new 100 day plan announced by Secretary of Commerce Ross, which will set out guideposts to rebalance the bilateral trade relationship along an expedited timeline. Presidents also established a new U.S. China comprehensive dialogue at the summit, which will replace the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, and puts the dialogue into four new pillars. Xi Jinping's visit was eclipsed by the U.S. strike on Syria. U.S. allies and partners around the world welcomed the attack, but China was less thrilled. I sat down this week to discuss the summit and its outcome with Professor Jia Jong from Beijing University. Professor Jia Daozhong is Professor of International Political Economy, where he does research on both traditional and non-traditional security issues. He's also a senior Arthur Ross Fellow at the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society, and he has followed and written extensively on U.S.-China Relations. I think you'll find his perspectives quite interesting. He talks about his view that the outcome of the summit was above his expectation. He shared with me his perspectives on why many Chinese were upset that President Trump launched 59 Tomahawk missiles at Syria during the dinner on the first night of the summit in Mar-a-Lago. And he also discussed his views on President Xi's four main goals for the summit, including one uh, that relates directly to President Xi's anti-corruption campaign. I met Professor Jia at his offices on the campus of Beijing University this week to discuss the summit. Please enjoy this conversation and leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast.
0: I'm very happy to uh, do this with you. Um, Tsinghua Carnegie has been a uh, very uh, active venue for us to exchange ideas. Uh, I thank you for having the uh, opportunity, giving me the opportunity to do this. Um, I began to get interested in um, international political economy issues. Actually, by going this was the mid
1: nineteen eighties. You, I realize you are you're born in nineteen sixty five, right? So you're a year older than I am. Uh, oh, okay. I'm born the year of the horse, and you must yeah, be. Born. I was in
0: Anhui Province. Yeah. And we had a uh, professor of journalism on short-term visit. He was with us for a year, uh, half a year. I'm sorry, P- uh, Professor Johnson a very straight talking person, mm-hmm. and he was teaching me, I was an undergraduate student, uh-huh. writing. And, you know, the journalist, he was a, uh, uh, showing us how these media stories were developed. Mm-hmm. And one of the details that really got struck in my head was he said, this was 1984, 85, mm-hmm. Uh, the United States had more trade with Taiwan than with mainland China interesting and I was thinking okay I have no I had no base to challenge that statistically yeah but I it's wanted sort of to five know,
1: years after normalization of relations right with China
0: but I wanted to know how that came to be the case and what Taiwan was selling to the United States and what the uh, China was set into the right. United States, or vice versa. It was one of those events that just got struck um, in my head. Mm. But I wanted to, one way to know the outside world was uh, to get an idea of how things are actually rolling and moving mm-hmm. on the ground across national boundaries, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than just the big ideas.
1: Right, so, so trade, economic trade, interaction, Trade economics,
0: human business. interaction, business, so that's the kind of... Uh, hmm. uh, but I was trained as a language student. I don't have a... In which
1: language? English. English, yeah.
0: I don't have a, a very strong, let's say, disciplinary uh, background or a, much as mathematics or physics <laughs> well I
1: noticed you've spent if you're looking at your background you've spent a lot of time overseas uh, including, yes, uh, including 14 years in the US and Japan altogether that's correct um, how did that happen and what did you what did you learn from being abroad how has that changed the way you approach your work
0: well when I was in the US this was uh, 1989 till uh, 95. And I was made primarily on the West Coast, first Mm -hmm. in the state of uh, Washington. Mm -hmm. Later on, I was in um, Hawaii, the East West Center.
1: So you did your master's in Washington and your Ph.D. At the University of Hawaii, Hawaii. the East West Center. Picked a nice location to do your Ph.D. It's not just a nice location.
0: (laughs) I think, thinking back, uh, the Hawaii years did me a lot of good. Mm -hmm. Because uh, being out there in the middle of the Pacific... Um, we were less under the influence of the so-called being politically correct right. of the first Clinton administration. Mm. Uh, Chinese students in Hawaii in particular were less exposed to this kind of overseas quote-unquote human rights movement mm. that attracted the attention and time of lot of Chinese students. So we were, uh, students including myself, were actually... Uh, Taken us through the more traditional style of uh, teaching mm-hmm. uh, history, uh, policy process. Mm-hmm. And with the East West Center, those days, still uh, very active in trying to bridge policy debates within the US and with Asia. Mm-hmm. I benefited greatly from uh, being a research assistant to the uh, 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 research programs mm-hmm. in the east West center mm-hmm. so those were very yeah. good years yeah um, we had um, far less of an theory or an ideology ideology driven approach mm-hmm. to understanding international issues um, mm-hmm. When I was in Japan this was uh, in the mid1990s this was when Japan had uh, was Going through the impact of the Asian financial crisis, and um, of course, I was there teaching in English, but nevertheless, I was never trained as a Japan specialist. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn Japanese from the beginning just for every day, getting by every Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was very useful uh, in relating to my colleagues in Japan, Japanese colleagues who were more. who uh, were more comfortable speaking in a foreign language with a foreigner like me. Mm -hmm. And that was related to a lot of uh, Europeans and Americans um, who were in Japan talking about
1: uh, a great number of issues. And they could probably speak Japanese, probably. Many of them speak good Japanese. But not Chinese, so you used English to talk to them. That was English. And it
0: helped to broaden the horizon about how uh, Japan is understood and really you see a great effort on the part of many Japanese entities and individuals to have Japan understood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And actually today you see, you can see a sort of repetition of that here in China. You have a lot of institutions, individuals that try to get China understood by the rest of the world. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. (laughs) And when did you come to Beijing University?
0: Yeah, here. 2007. Okay. That's after uh, four years at uh, the neighboring school, People's University. Mm-hmm.
1: And how much of your attention do you focus on U.S.-China? You and I have been in a lot of U.S.-China discussions. My sense is that you spend quite a bit of time looking at this. Um, in fact, we were in a number of discussions before this most recent summit at at Mar-a-Lago. So how much of your focus is on the U.S.-China bilateral relationship?
0: Uh, It's about, I wouldn't say half, but at least a quarter of Mm -hmm. my time. Uh, This is, uh, we are now in the eighth year Mm -hmm. of the regularized, what's called track two dialogue, with uh, a group of Americans that uh, you know, the National Committee on U.S.-China relations. Oh, sure. Puts that together. Mm-hmm. Prominent figures in this group include uh, Carla Hills, who was USTR under Reagan. Right, uh, sure. Robert Rubin, mm-hmm. who served as Treasury under President Clinton. Right. So I sure. learned a lot from uh, these individuals who are really uh, walking dictionaries of U.S.-China relations, especially in the economics field. In operation, Mm -hmm. and on our side, we relate to. uh, I'm the only political scientist uh, by training on the team. Mm -hmm. I learn from fellow professors from Beta, uh, who are trained economists. But also, uh, in addition to the professors, we have bankers, we have uh, retired government officials. Um, So, that's a very important um, venue of trying to. We have developed the rapport yeah. through uh, these biannual meetings uh, whereby we really talk to each other as individuals rather than representatives of yeah. particular interests.
1: Well, I'm a big fan of uh, the National Committee on U.S. China Relations. Uh, in 2002, I had the honor to be in the inaugural group of U.S. China Young Leaders. Oh, okay. They still do that. And they still do it every year, um, right. and just had the the most recent recent group was here in Guangzhou, right? Right. Uh, and it, unfortunately, I couldn't attend this year, but uh, I've been several years over the time period between 2002 and now. And uh, national committee, we, we do as much as we can with the national committee at Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Because yeah, the, the
0: committee is doing more of this very uh, useful exercise. I I have no business promoting the committee, but <laughs> it just it just came to my to my head. Um, they are now. Organizing more and more of these uh, short, two-week, sometimes two weeks, sometimes mm-hmm. shorter trips by congressional staffers yep. and yep. congressmen to Beijing. Yeah, uh, we usually China. do something with them. Yeah, and this is the, very useful in yeah. uh, reaching out to the entire American political process, Absolutely. Than just at the White House.
1: Absolutely, and we've hosted them, those groups at our at our home, my wife and I. Oh, you did? Because she used to work on Capitol Hill. And yeah, they come and the to my morning.
0: school and my program a lot. Those
1: are very, very important, and I think they have a big impact. Well, let's dive in then and talk about U.S.-China relations. Um, you, I want to get a sense of your impression of the summit that just took place between President Trump and President Xi at Mar-a-Lago. Ahead of the summit, you wrote in an article uh, that, quote, an uneventful meetup is going to be a successful one. And you argued in your article that China and the United States should avoid dramatic rhetoric and emphasize a positive relationship. What's your sense? How do we do?
0: I'm balanced. frankly speaking, I think <laughs> the uh, summit went beyond my expectation. Mm. Um, the the, the lead-up to the summit was very complex and challenging for both. Sides, And uh, frankly speaking, probably in terms of the rhetorical environment for these two, team, two mm-hmm. teams, one from the White House, one from Zhongnan High, um, I think both sides had reasons to project themselves as the underdog part. Mm-hmm. And both sides were facing a powerful, even though unspoken question, Why are you meeting after all? Right. Because the issues and the options presented were so outstandingly uh, conflictual. Mm -hmm. And I do feel uh, uh, the way it ended um, and the announcements made Mm -hmm. uh, tried to project an image of stability. And I think the totality of the meeting, the result of the meeting, is that they are ready to work with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the most substantial um, outcome of the meeting is the announcement of these four sets of right. dialogues. Right. Um, I do me, know there are yeah. skeptics.
1: Sure. Let me before we talk about that. Let me back up because you raised an po- important point. Was many people are we ready for the meeting? Why? Why are we doing it now? I think it'd be very helpful for the listeners of this China and the World podcast, which is a broad international audience, to, to hear your perspectives of the context of the summit in China's broader domestic and foreign policy environment. So why did the summer the summit matter for President Xi in terms of the events taking place in Beijing this year, in terms of the 19th Party Congress which will take place in the fall? And also in terms of President Xi's foreign policy agenda for the next six months, what do you see as President Xi's aim for the summit, and how does and his priorities um, going forward in the meeting in Florida? Well,
0: uh, if I, to the extent I know, but uh, uh, this is more. Just me as a professor and observer flashing this up, mm-hmm. so I don't. Yeah. I speak for myself only. Sure. I would think uh, for Mr. Xi, the summit, uh, a successful summit, uh, however you define it, is useful for at least four. Uh, in, in, we can explain that utility by referring to four dimensions of Chinese politics, domestic politics. First and foremost is the anti-corruption campaign. Mm -hmm. That is beyond argument, the hallmark of Mr. Xi's political success at Mm -hmm. home. But look, the United States has not been the most active in returning to China the fugitives That's on the so-called Skynet list, the 100. And that's
1: where... There are Chinese that have committed crimes and have fled China and gone States. Many of them were high-ranking
0: officials or the, you know, low-ranking officials, Mm -hmm. what we call big tigers or small flies. Small flies, sure. And that's where they... Why you go to the U.S. in the first place. The Americans are not helping you.
1: So that's an important part of it. It's very important. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think he uh, got on the plane, flew to Florida, mm-hmm. with a, a bit of a risk mm-hmm. of facing further domestic criticism.
1: One of the pillars of the U.S.-China Comprehensive Dialogue, right. which is now the new U.S. Strategic and Economic Dialogue, the new repackaged format, is a pillar on cyber and on law enforcement, law enforcement issues, and this gets at your point about right. refugees. I think th-
0: in the domestic context, he's under very heavy pressure to show he can deliver because so many Chinese officials uh, at different levels of the government and society have successfully fled to the West. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are long list of legal and treaty issues. I'm not accusing Americans, myself. I'm a scholar, I know better, yeah. but as a politician, she mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. to face the question, huh? right. okay, you go, you know, proactively go to Florida, what are the Americans giving you back? Got it. Got so it. that's one point. Mm-hmm. Now another uh, dimension would be domestically, it's the, uh, that he can handle the regional relationship. Um, because the South China Sea, or the THAAD problem that's the missile development program in South South Korea. Korea. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of uh, voices in China how we have handled uh, this, how we could have handled all these matters differently. But now you have a new president in the United States, and uh, you have a new Secretary of State, who during I'm talking about uh, Rex Tillerson, sure. who had a very explicitly uh, worded version of, you know, uh, policies toward the South China Sea, U.S. policies
1: during his trip,
0: right? Yeah. So basically, what I'm really trying to say is that um, there is that demand from the Chinese political circles, the demand would be something like this. Okay, Mr. Xi, why don't you go and talk to the Americans' uh, leadership face-to-face, but you also have the uh, responsibility on your shoulder to show they listen to you.
1: Mm-hmm. And, that, and that you can get regional orders in a better position you can, yeah, for you China. Can.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. I think that's a second Mm-hmm. Um, dimension. A third dimension has to do with trade. Uh, I think trade comes in third. Most mm-hmm. Chinese understand um, that if you look at the actual companies that are conducting the trade between China and the United States, the mainstream of those companies are non Chinese. Mm-hmm. They are American, they are Japanese, they are Taiwanese, they are Singaporean, you know, and we have the Hong Kong conduit. So Americans can be mad with China uh, over this trade deficit, U.S. deficit, Chinese surplus, and we have had this, you know, round after round, years after year. And people easily forget, and you should remember. You were uh, in the White House in the first uh, the term of the Bush presidency. The two governments actually uh, set up a joint committee mm-hmm. to look at the trade. Uh, right uh, statistics. The this
1: is about the Joint Com- Commission on Commerce and Trade, exactly JCCT. Yeah.
0: So the that's a third one. No fourth one, if I, I may. But that's going to be rather quick. Mr. Xi has to prove that he can get relationship with the United States to be going in a stable way. Otherwise, China's uh, credibility in terms of hosting the uh, the uh, belt one belt one Road conference that's mm-hmm. going to be in mid-May mm-hmm. will be put into question. so there were a lot at stake for mm-hmm. him to go that mm-hmm.
1: and so and so how did and, and, and now looking at the outcome in that context, from that perspective, how did President Xi do in a domestic Chinese domestic context in the aftermath of the trip how has it been assessed here in China? A success?
0: I don't know if you it will take a few more days for me to talk to more people mm-hmm. and get a better sense mm-hmm. but I think uh, the a lot of observers including his critics were probably taken a gust by the uh, coincidence in the timing of the meeting and the uh, firing of missiles mm-hmm. towards Syria.
1: So let's talk about that. Um, President Xi was probably surprised, I think, at the dinner on the first evening in Mar right. a Lago when, right. when President Trump told him that the U.S. had just concluded a missile strike 59 Tomahawks, <laughs> to be exact, on a Syrian airfield. Right. And this Syrian airfield was the one that was responsible for recent chemical weapons attack. So how did it affect the summit, from your view, from a Chinese context?
0: I personally do not think, I, let me make it clear, I personally do not think this was meant to be a message towards China. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? It's an American tradition, you know, let's say, America, Trump White House, like every other Amer- major American institution, is quite a resource resourceful it can do multiple things at the same time and if you look at the american journalists when you know you have foreign visits mm-hmm. they normally prioritize you know inquiry into domestic issues mm-hmm. and uh syria is not a major china concern and um, we traditionally uh, voted along with the russians on such matters mm-hmm. and I doubt this would be perceived that way. I mean, I don't perceive that way.
1: So some in China, I think you're implying that some in China believed that the Trump administration deliberately timed the attack to take place while President Xi was there to send a message to China and possibly to send a message to China about U.S. policy on North Korea in mm-hmm. terms of what it can do and what capabilities and what it's willing to do in terms of taking military actions? Many do,
0: many do, I don't. Many mm-hmm. do, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, if I can summarize what I've read and heard uh, from those Chinese who link the missile strike on Syria and, and whatever message was meant for China, it begins with, uh, those arguments begin with a kind of cultural explanation here in Asia or in China, uh, when you are hosting guests, you know, um, you don't shout at your dog,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: you want it to be yeah. smooth, you don't yeah. want an yeah. a, a unrelated surprise. And so it was
1: could be considered disrespectful in that context. That's, and that, that's something I have heard from Chinese friends that I've talked to right. and other Chinese scholars that I've talked right.
0: to. Right. It's a, a very basic requirement mm-hmm. uh, of etiquette mm-hmm. when you receive guests. So that's one argument. I think that goes very deeply among those Chinese who are just Chinese, who may not be into U.S.-China relations. Mm-hmm. And another layer of this so-called message for China uh, is probably goes a lot more, a lot further than just over North Korea. Uh, there is a, a deeper sense of disquiet. hmm on a number of issues, let's say, uh, it's not about military strike, it's the determination, it's the willingness to act, and it's the delivery of an action without prior notice, the combination of all that, or -hmm. unilateralism, if you will. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Chinese are probably very concerned about if this was going to be a pattern, what would happen on issues like the US promise to help Japan or protect Japan on the Senkaku Islands? Uh, should the Japanese move? Because the Japanese have a plan to uh, inhabit these offshore islands. If the Chinese were going to get into some sort of clash, what would America do? Mm-hmm. Would, that, would American action be in a similar manner? Taiwan, of course, in the South China Sea. And I don't really think on North Korea, we need to receive another message. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, for those of us who've been working on... He's been this, tweeting about that a lot lately. Yeah, yeah, I know. But for those of us who've been working on U.S.-China relations, and we talk about North Korea all the time. Right. Um, uh, a... It's possible to summarize the sentiments among those Chinese and Americans who know the situation as such uh, to be the following. China has less impact on North Korean behavior than what's generally portrayed outside China. But China can do more to try to influence North Korea than what it says it has already done. Mm -hmm. That's probably where we are. Mm -hmm. Mm Point one. Mm-hmm. Now point two is that a big variable in all this is South Korea. Because you know the South Koreans um, can do a whole lot. And of course given the current situation of political instability in South Korea and uh, Chinese relationship with South Korea sort of turning from an, a few years of warmth to a few years of a free fall. It's a very
1: complicated
0: situation. Yeah.
1: The, um, I hear a lot of people say that one of President Xi's goals while he was in Mar-a-Lago is to be perceived, be seen in China from Chinese audiences as an equal to the U.S. president, putting China and the U.S. on equal footing. Some have said that potentially this action, the ability by the United States to simply reach out and strike Syria, somehow impacted uh, President Xi's ability to look as though he's an equal. That clearly, the United States sort of is the only country that can take unilateral actions like that. How do you react to something like that? See, you see that in the press uh, right now quite a bit.
0: Well, the Chinese press, you know, there are a lot of people who. Interpret things in their own ways, but that sentiment, in my reading, is probably more would be probably more accurate in describing Mr. Xi's wishes when he went to the uh, Sunnylands mm-hmm. uh, meet up with President Obama, former this President in, Obama,
1: in, in June of two thousand thirteen.
0: Right. I would say after those many meetings with his former president Obama, after having been in his seat to handle U.S.-China relations since then, and after listening, uh, I mean, I'm being on the receiving end of Mr. Trump's treats,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I doubt mm-hmm. I mean, he would be extremely foolish mm-hmm. to have that kind of expectation going mm-hmm. to Florida. I mm-hmm. think he's a the expectation was probably um, just to stabilize it. Mm-hmm. I think that's
1: mm-hmm. what it Let me ask you um, a couple more questions. And I know you've got to go to class yeah, yeah, quickly. Exactly. So you mentioned the, the new U.S.-China comprehensive dialogue as one of the outcomes. And in a recent China file conversation, both you and I participated in right, it. Right. And you had said in, in, your, um, in your article... Um, that you supported keeping the strategic and economic dialogue as a formal communication channel. They've announced that, you know, they're going to repackage it. It'll be split into four dialogues headed by the two presidents, as I understand it. Uh, what do you think of that kind of an announcement? Is this a, simply just a repackaging, or do you think there will be significant differences in the way that, and an improvement in the way it was done in the past?
0: I hope this is going to turn out to be an improvement. Mm-hmm. I hope. The, I emphasize that. Why? Because, you know, we cannot just be talking about U.S. and China. We cannot just be talking about the White House and Zhongnanhai.
1: Yeah.
0: On a daily basis, you were in White House. You know right. much better. <laughs> you have these corresponding agencies. Mm-hmm. And these Chinese and American agents do not correspond with each other right, one on one. Right, right. It's
1: hard to find your direct counterpart. Yeah.
0: You, there is This famous Kissingerian, Kissingerian question. Of who do I call up? Right. Yeah. On the other side.
1: Yeah, different systems, different very system. different systems, different bureaucratic orders. So
0: actually one of the things we, meaning out of the uh, dialogue group, Two dialogue group, uh, I just mentioned, we recommended was that for China and the United States, to appoint a council of wise men or so mm-hmm. to become in communication with each other, uh, but
1: these... In people, the administration or outside of the administration? Outside of the administration, mm-hmm.
0: but these would not be people who would be held bureaucratically bureaucratically responsible, right. but they would be out there, be tasked to explore various options. I don't know how that's been taken up, we reported to both governments as such. But then the point here is the preparation for any of these dialogue formats is really what matters. Yeah. And yeah. it would be a. Now, with one of these comprehensive dialogues being chaired by head of states, mm-hmm. the stakes are much higher. higher. Yeah. yeah. So I hope uh, yeah. as the White House fills its China or Asia desks, um, there will be moving more into a, of a routine of preparations rather mm-hmm. than just having these things. These
1: can be good forcing functions to get things done right, right as you prepare for it. And one of the things I've also heard is that there's not going to be as many officials. That they're going to sort of streamline it and try to make them more outcome oriented yeah, more right. results oriented. And so Which, I'm
0: beginning with the setting of the agenda mm-hmm. this is it's less of a opportunity for officials on either side. Mm-hmm. just to mm-hmm. speak up. These five-minute presentations by an official on the topic and moving to the next one, that's a total waste of time. Yeah. We realize that as much as well.
1: Going into the summit, President Trump w- appeared very zero-sum, very zero-sum approach, very hostile, right. a lot of bluster, a lot of brash language. Um, but the tone that seems to be set coming out of it is different. His granddaughter, Ivanka's, Ivanka's daughter, serenaded President Xi in Mandarin with Moli Hua, the song <laughs> Moli Hua. Trump hailed the meeting as producing tremendous progress. And he said, President Trump said, he believed that lots of very potentially bad problems in the relationship will be going away. What do you make of this? Um,
0: well, he's learning to, Mr. Trump is learning to be more presidential. And um, I think after about 90 days of listening and watching him in action, uh, more and more folks on the Chinese side are trying to take his message seriously, but not every wording or the Mm. uh, temperament. Not every tweet. Not every tweet, but um, then Mr. Tillerson and others uh, have probably done an effective job in relating to the Chinese side in the uh, preparation for the summit. Um, the last thing, I, I would also think um, China, the Chinese leadership, beginning from the election, the uh, election eve, when, you know, the mid it was getting clear Mr. Trump was going to win. Um, there were clear instructions from the very top to refrain from willful comments on mm. Mr. Trump himself or his administration. That's staying on. Um, it helps uh, the uh, the leadership on the Chinese side to, let's say, um, project, an official version of what the Trump administration is. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also have a fairly active social media. Mm -hmm. Um, But down the road, I would think, um, I mean, in reality, I would think very few here in China actually see Maybe it's just me and the bias when because for, we are in constant, many of us are in constant com- conversations with the Americans about it. I think, uh, at least among those who are in the know about US-China relations, we never really expected the ties, the management of the ties to be so difficult or so out of control. Mm. Uh, mm. For mm. better or for worse, mm. you know, we are in constant contact. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, if you look at the, the history of uh, these interactions, both Americans and Chinese are amendable and uh, they both, you know, have demonstrated a good measure of
1: pragmatism. President Xi said after the summit that China was ready to work with Trump to push forward China-U.S. relations from a new starting point. And that there are a thousand reasons to make the China-U.S. relationship work, and no no reason to break it.
0: Right. I the, the, he said it very beautifully, very rhetorically, but I, I would think the way Mr. Trump changed his tone. I mean, this may be called politically costly for him. For President Trump. Yeah, in the domestic context, but hopefully this is the beginning of a process of pragmatic interactions of actually substantial interactions away from media headlines and then uh, after all it's the uh, actual practitioners mm-hmm. of the relationship that needs to have a quiet uh, environment to work out whatever differences. But I really don't think the differences are that fundamental.
1: Well, time will tell, and I want to thank you very much for spending time with the listeners of China and the World podcast. I hope this helps. (laughs) It helps very much, and we hope to be able to come back to you as we go further along in U.S.-China relationships and and the U.S.-China relationship and engage again. So thank you very much for your time. Sure, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the program. That's it for this edition of Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next time.